Psalm 95. We'll read the answers of the last two questions on Lord's Day 34. Lord's Day 34, that'll be on page 48, the back of our hymnal. Questions 94 and 95, dealing with uh, what the Lord requires in the first commandment. We'll read those together after we read God's word. Psalm 95 is our Old Testament reading, and 1 Corinthians 8 is our New Testament reading. Here... God's holy words, we read Psalm 95, beautiful song of praise to God. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth And the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8. The first six verses. First Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 6. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Then question 94, question 94, page 48, the back of our blue, blue hymnal. Let's read the answers together. So beloved, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my very salvation 
Avoid and shun all idolatry, magic, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust him alone, look to him for every good thing, humbly and patiently, love him, fear him, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against his will in any way. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. This is going to sound like it's from the fringes of uh, our Christian faith. There was an article that I saw this past week, and the title was this, Polyamory. Uh, I should tell you, that just means um, loving, romantically loving more than one person, usually within the context of a marriage. Polyamory, the pastor's next sexual frontier. And then the subtitle, These Once Taboo Relationships Are Showing Up in Churches Across the United States. Now, again, the title makes it sound like it's something from sort of way out, way off on the fringes of the faith. This is actually going to be printed in the next edition of Christianity Today, which is the most well-known magazine for American evangelicalism. And I know the author of this article. I don't know him extremely well, but I've, I've talked with him personally uh, more than once. And a very frustrating article. And uh, one of the things that was very frustrating was in uh, the way that this whole issue of polyamory was presented. So what happens is often a husband and a wife are dealing with whatever emotional uh, instability they have or whatever difficulty they have. The solution they have is, well, perhaps we should sort of have romantic involvement with other people and still maintain our marriage. One of the very strange things that I found in this article was that the author said there are things about this practice that are good. There are elements about it that are good. And what he basically says is the desire for community or connection, etc., is a good thing. This is what he says here. The notion of kinship in polyamory is a secular echo of the way scripture calls the church to function as a new family. In cultures that idolize individualism, polyamory's focus on relationship, care, and affection can have a powerful pull. And in churches that idolize marriage and the nuclear family, polyamory's focus on hospitality and community can be an attractive alternative. We can acknowledge that many of the elements that draw people to polyamory, deep relationships, care for others, hospitality, and community, are good things. But this is not a good thing at all. What it does is it takes 
the, the elements of our lives, the people of our lives, it sort of jumbles them all up. You know, this is something, this has been a, a running joke at our house for a while. Um, and Michelle and I, as we're kind of talking back and forth, I, I've gotten a kick out of lately saying to her uh, that, that you're my wife, you're not my best friend. Right? You're, you're my wife, you're not my best friend. And I say that because I like to be contrarian. And I see how in many ways in the culture, uh, and especially in evangelical culture, people are saying, well, you have to have your wife be your best friend. And the point that I'm making to my wife, she's not here. You can let her know this, by the way. She'll, her mother's playing for us tonight, so I'm sure that she'll find out. My point to my wife is that you are my wife. There is no one on planet Earth that I am to care about more, that I am to love more, to share more with. I don't need you to be my best friend because you are my wife. And as my wife, I am to give you my, my heart in that way. My best friend is going to be my best friend, and we're going to have a special relationship, yes, but even that is not going to compare with you as my wife. My daughter is my daughter, and she's not my buddy on the weekend. I, I'm not trying to get her to like me. I am her father, and that has all kinds of uh, implications for how I treat her and how I raise her. Oh, see, these are unique relationships. And the idea of um, this movement, the polyamory, it's about jumbling everything together and not keeping things in their proper place. It's a desire to transgress boundaries, not a desire to have a deeper connection with people. Perhaps you see where I'm going with this, that God is our God, and only he deserves that place in our lives. And idolatry, to take something other than God, and what the the catechism says so beautifully, this is going to be something that is imagined, or something we create in our own hearts, or something that exists in the world, and we put it on the throne of our hearts. We give it our heart in a way that we only are to give God. We're not doing that out of any good desire. We're doing that because we are worshiping beings and we have chosen uh, to not worship the only true God in the proper way. Another thing that was extremely frustrating about this article was that it said in all of these, these issues that pastors are facing now is that rather than tell people, don't do this, don't do that, you can't do this, God, the Bible says this is wrong, what you need to do is you, you need to provide a robust, positive vision for what is actually good and true and right. And so he says, instead of preaching about polyamory directly from the pulpit, consider constructing a positive vision for monogamy. In other words, tell people what, what, a, what a good marriage looks like and put that before them and don't tell them, don't do this. Now, I would say you should do both. And look at the Ten Commandments themselves. How are the Ten Commandments constructed? You shall not do this. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Studies have been conducted with children. And it's been shown that when parents don't set firm boundaries for their children... That, hey, don't do this. This is the line. Don't cross this line. And when you cross this line, you're going to be disciplined. When 
firm boundaries are not established for children, children will actually become much more anxious because they don't know where the boundaries are and they don't know where their parents are actually going to start enforcing the boundaries. Their parents may say, well, don't do that, but then they do it and then they're not disciplined. That makes kids very anxious and it actually can work them up into a frenzy. All kinds of problems uh, have been shown to occur when that happens. It's almost like if you were to be sleeping under a roof but there's no walls. Right? Imagine you go into your bedroom tonight and all of the walls around you sort of crumble away. The roof is still over your head but there are no boundaries on any of the sides. You wouldn't feel very safe, would you? We are human beings that have been created to feel safe within the boundaries that God defines for us. And the Ten Commandments are a wonderful example of those boundaries. And within those boundaries that he, that he creates for us, where he says, have no other gods before me. Don't do this. Don't do that. And there are some positive commands as well. Keep the Sabbath holy, right? Sanctify the day that you have given us. But within those boundaries, then all of a sudden we understand and we know how we are to serve God particularly in the freedom that Christ has won for us. So this first commandment, if we live uh, according to it, according to what it says, we will put God alone in the place that he deserves in our hearts. He will be honored in our hearts, in our lives, because he alone is God. So the first thing that we consider is this idea of idolatry, which the catechism addresses for us. And sometimes the language of scripture can get people confused because in Psalm 95, it says, you are the great God, the great king above all gods. And yet we often catch ourselves thinking, well, I thought that the Bible says that there are no other gods, that God is the only one. So which one is it? Well, this is the way we have to to think about it, that false gods don't exist, but idols sure do. False gods don't exist, but idols sure do. Are there other gods? Well, ultimately, no. Ultimately, no. Only God is a divine being in uh, in the universe that he has created. 1 Corinthians 8 Verse 4, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. And so Paul says an idol, an idol is, is pointing to a God that people think exists. You know, and they go into the marketplace and there was this, there would be stands where they would be selling idols to a god and people would have them or bring them back to their home. The meat that they would buy would often be sacrificed to idols and that became an issue in the early church. And Paul's saying, it's not as if whatever fill-in-the-blank god exists, right? My ancestors worshipped Thor and Odin. Right? They're not real. They don't actually exist metaphysically. But... Uh, so, the, so ultimately there are no other gods, but are there other gods in a different sense? Well, yes, in a different sense there are, because there are things in this world, or things that we construct in our own minds, that even though they don't have existence, they have power to enslave people totally. 
So in, the, in biblical times, people worshipped false gods. And in our world, people still worship false gods. You think of Hinduism, which I think has mi- millions, literally millions of gods that they worship. And it exercises, that false religion exercises power over people's lives. It causes them to do things that rather than glorifying the true God, they worship and serve and glorify nothings and idolatrous gods who have no existence. And as we bring that into our own lives, in our own culture, all of us struggle with worshiping things that uh, we want to place on the throne of our hearts. So... People worship power, security, and wealth. Fill in the blank. As the, catem- as the catechism says, idolatry is when we have something else in which we place our trust. We're called to trust God alone. So whatever you are trusting, wealth, security, your position, your power, whatever you're trusting, that becomes an idol. And if it has a power to enslave you, and cause you to live in a certain way, particularly a sinful way, then we know that, again, no God exists except our God. But at the same time, the power of idolatry is real and can totally enslave people. So to take the first commandment seriously is to take idolatry seriously. Isaiah and Elijah mocked false gods, but they didn't do that because they, they thought that the false gods were nothing to be reckoned with. They did it so as to show that the true God has a power certainly beyond uh, these false gods. First John, at the end of his letter, his, his ending command is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, that, that's his parting words that he wanted to leave with them. That's what he was concerned that for that to stick in their minds so that they would remember, we need to keep ourselves from idols. Idols are never far from our hearts. We need to be aware of that and be careful to avoid it. The catechism interestingly says we must avoid and flee idolatry as much as we love our soul's salvation. We've been talking in recent weeks about what it means to to have and to know and to love our salvation, to realize this is what Christ has done for me and to let that move you into serving him more. Do you love the salvation that Christ has won for you? As much as you love it, that uh, that is how much you are to avoid idolatry and to flee it. To take the first commandment seriously also means to flee Anything that gives a false sense of security. So the, the catechism names sorcery and soothsaying. All of these kinds of things that, that do not trust in God alone. There's been a, an uptick in astrology recently. It's, a, it's big business on the internet. People read it all of the time. And it gives them a false sense of security. Like they know what's going to happen in their lives. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But we know that God is good. And we know that God is sovereign. So what do we do? We trust him. 
We give ourselves to him. And when we feel discomfort, when we feel anxious, what do we do? We go to him. We don't try to conjure up any kinds of favors with saints or anyone other than God. We pray to God alone, for he hears us in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And so we can commune with the triune God in prayer. This means to take the first commandment seriously, to trust in him alone, to submit to him. We submit to his will with all humility and patience. Those are good ideas to keep in your mind. Trust in him alone, submit to him with humility and patience. So that's some thoughts on idolatry and the need to flee it. That these other gods don't exist. There is only one God and yet we need to be careful about the power that idolatrous gods can exercise over us. To obey the first commandment, though, ultimately means to love God. It means to love him. If you, if you have a true and sincere love for God, then you're well on your way to obeying this first commandment. The Westminster Larger Catechism, I, I love it. I love reading it because it's so rich there's probably no way I'm ever going to memorize the whole thing um, because when it gives answers like this, I'll show you. Well, it says, what are the duties required in the first commandment? The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, to worship and to glorify him the right way by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, Desiring, fearing him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. You see, this is... Presbyterianism is a beautiful thing. The Westminster Larger Catechism. But all of that, you can sum that up. Now, loving is in there, but if you love God, all of those things will follow. You will revere him. You will trust him. You'll submit to him. You will be upset when you offend against his holy law. You will desire to walk with him, walk humbly with him. You will be careful to please him when you love God as your God then you will do all of those things, whether you know it or not. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. The man who loves God is known by God. Who is the one who loves him? Who loves God? If you love God, you are known by him. And your life will reflect that love that you have for him. A lot of the commands bring us to this very same thing, don't they? To love God. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Notice how the uniqueness of God, God alone, the Lord is God alone, is connected to the command to love him. Love the Lord your God. Why? Because we were created to love our maker. We were created to love our God. So love is, we live in a world where love is often thought of as a feeling and an affection. And certainly that is part of it. We see that God's love for us is an affectionate love. He is described as a father to the fatherless. That he settles the solitary in a home. He leads prisoners out to prosperity. 
As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Isaiah 66, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. A tender love that God has. God's love for us is tender and compassionate, described with all of these emotional qualities. So our love for God is to be an emotional and affectionate love. We are to to love God in a way that reflects his love for us. Uh, And we do that primarily, or one of the ways, one of the primary ways is by singing to him. That's how our emotions, our affections can be pointed towards God. Psalm 95, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? Let me never ever outlive my love for thee. So our love is affectionate. It is an emotive love. But it, is, it goes deeper than emotion and sentiment. What does it mean to love God? It, it means to, to want to serve him. All of those things that we talked about. So it needs to include faithfulness. Going back to the idea of polyamory or uh, thruples as they're called. When there's a marriage and then someone else is introduced to it. But in a marriage there is no third party. We know that that's, that's an illegitimate thing. Marriage is an exclusive relationship One man and one woman. To love your spouse means to have an exclusive commitment and it means to stick with your commitment. It means that it doesn't run out. There isn't this expiration date before death on your love. It is a radical and exclusive choice. And the service that we are to render for God is reflective of that very same kind of thing. We are called to a radical and exclusive choice because only one being, only one entity can be on the throne of our hearts. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. He doesn't say it's a bad idea. He doesn't say it's probably not going to work out most of the time. He says you cannot serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a radical choice. Who is your master? God is your master. If you love God, then you will always seek to keep him as your master, as your king, as your God, and you will give him that place that he alone uh, is to occupy in the throne of your hearts. The first commandment also means that you are obedient to Christ. You are obedient to Christ, that you uh, submit to him as your Lord, for he is the God-man. Psalm 95. Uh, So Psalm 95 says... There is no God but our God. Let us sing to him. Let us worship him. And then it says, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. What is that That picture of kneeling? It's that picture of reverence. You kneel before one whom you revere and whom you are acknowledging as your master. To kneel. We kneel before God. If you go to Philippians 2, we see that the whole world will one day kneel before Jesus Christ. 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what we do now. We bend the knee to Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our master. To have no other gods before the true God is to have Christ as Lord. Jesus said in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. First John chapter 3, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the first commandment is to love God. The first commandment is to submit to Christ. Therefore, it is to love Christ. And to love Christ is to be busy about keeping his word. To be busy about doing what he has commanded us to do. And that's why the catechism brings it to, at the end there, it says that we are to love and fear and honor God with our whole heart. With our whole heart. Not parts, not half, not two-thirds. We are called to love and fear and honor God with our whole heart. Now that, of course, if that means that we at every moment need to be perfect, then it's, it's not going to work. We know that we are not perfect and we stumble and fall. But we can love God with all of our hearts because what it means is to have that our whole being, our whole person, mind, heart, and will is all oriented towards the service of God. It all has, every part of you has a devotion to God. So uh, we hear these words, we know that it's a lot to try to do, to love God with our whole heart. And we seek to do it. But the good news is, of course, that God is the keeper of our hearts, that Christ is the purifier of our hearts, that the triune God is the shaper and the molder of our hearts. And the promises that we have is that God is going to give grace to us that our hearts might be oriented towards him and might be more and more devoted to him. So what we need is we need God's promise that he will keep our hearts more than we will be able to keep it pure before him. You stumble and fall and you realize that wasn't a wholehearted loving God and loving Christ moment. What do I do? Remember that God is the keeper of your heart. Remember that Christ is the purifier of your heart. Psalm 121, what does it say? It says, all all that it says is that God will keep you, right? He will be the one who keeps you. When, When we can't keep ourselves, which is often, God will keep us. He will keep us by his grace. He will keep us in his grace He will form our hearts to love and be devoted to him more. Verse 2, Psalm 121. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So one pastor puts it this way. You seek to love Christ faithfully with all your hearts, knowing, desiring, and choosing. But your deeper confidence 
is in Christ's love for you and his keeping, preserving, and protecting you. He will keep you from falling and keep you from the evil one because he who is the maker of the heavens and the earth is your help. He will keep you when you come in and go out by day and by night because your helper is God who does not slumber or sleep. He will keep you from this time forth and forevermore because your Savior is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before him in his glorious presence. I am to serve God with all of my heart. I can't always do that. So what I need to lean on is God's promise that he is the keeper of my heart. That he has saved me by his grace. And he is bringing my heart more and more in conformity with him. In conformity with his will. So that I can look to the first commandment. And I can remember, yes, I am called to do that. But I can also remember that, yes, Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for me. And he gives me his spirit that I would be renewed, that I would be sanctified, that I would love him more and more. And he is the keeper of my heart. And he is making my heart more and more, more and more uh, like Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, what a wonderful word to hear. And what a glorious promise, what glorious grace we've been given. Let's pray. God, we praise thee. You alone are worthy of praise and we confess that we just don't always live like it and we need your help. We need you to be the keeper of our hearts. We thank you that you are a glorious and sovereign, wonderful triune God. So we give you all the glory and praise and we ask that you would continue to do your work in us by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.